Hi, I'm Kate Spina. This is Toward Light, Practical Buddhism for the Modern World. Each week, I explore ways to apply these timeless teachings to our daily life. Hi, and welcome to episode four of season two of the Toward Light podcast. Last episode, I shared the Buddha's decision to teach what he had learned. Once he made that decision, he had to decide who to teach and how. This week, while I'll share a little bit about the Buddha's journey to teach, my primary focus is on the importance of Sangha, of community, and how Sangha can support our practice. Once the Buddha had made the decision to teach and knew that there were those with quote-unquote little dust in their eyes who would benefit from the teachings, he needed to decide where to start. Before he went to sit under the tree and wake up, he had been practicing with five other spiritual seekers, so he decided to go to them. This makes sense, right? Seeing the suffering in the world and wanting to meet it can be a daunting task, so he chose some people he knew, who he knew were already on a spiritual path, and went to teach them. Side note, I'm going to share this part of the story because I think it's hilarious, on the way to find his friends, the Buddha ran into this guy, Upaka. And Upaka saw that the Buddha was luminous, and he asked, Clear, my friend, are your faculties, pure your complexion, and bright. On whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? And whose Dhamma do you delight? And the Buddha said, All vanquishing, all knowing am I with regard to all things, unadhering all abandoning, released in the energy of craving, having fully known on my own, to whom should I point as my teacher? I have no teacher, and one like me can't be found. In the world with its devas, I have no counterpart, for I am an arahant in the world. I, the unexcelled teacher, I alone am rightly self-awakened. Cooled am I unbound to set the rolling of the wheel of the Dhamma, I go to the city of Kasi, in a world become blind, I beat the drum of the deathless. So that's like a pretty intense introduction. And Upaka kind of looked at him and shook his head and said, might be so, and walked away. I share this story to remind us, A, that the Buddha didn't have this teaching thing down quite yet. He still needed to find a way to share his insights that would be heard. And B, because while Upaka saw the brilliance in the Buddha, he didn't know him, so he didn't see the changes that had happened. If he'd seen the before and after, would he have been more inclined to listen? Maybe. When the Buddha got to his friends, it's possible that they gave him more of a shot or were more willing to listen to what he had to say because they knew him before. When the Buddha got to the other five ascetics, they initially gave him Grief, calling him a food eater because they had all been practicing starvation practices when he left, and now they could tell that he'd been eating again. The Buddha trusted these friends and knew that even while giving him some grief, they would still listen to him. As Ibram X. Kendi says, it's best to challenge ourselves by dragging ourselves before people who intimidate us with their brilliance and constructive criticism. So I want to pause in the story. In one of the next episodes, I'll share what the Buddha taught, and spoiler alert, his friends received the teachings and became awake. But for now, I want to focus on this idea of Sangha, of community. This was the creation of the first Buddhist community, and what does that mean for us today? 
Why is Sangha considered one of the three gems we take refuge in in Buddhism? And how do we find and create Sangha? Now, in this example, the Buddha created community in person, and there was a teacher and some students. And this model continues today in monastic and lay communities all around the world. And that is one definition of Sangha. Sangha can be created in different ways, in different configurations. So I'm going to be using the word Sangha very broadly. The importance is that we're not doing this alone, that we have support for our path, for our practice. At different moments in our practice, we may need different things, sometimes more direction and structure, sometimes less. Our temperaments or experiences may color what we need or how we want Sangha to look. During the pandemic, while so many offerings have been moved online, I have a friend who deeply misses the weekly sitting group she used to attend and can't wait to meditate weekly in a room with others. I haven't missed that so much, but I've really missed the sangha that comes with retreat and doing an intensive period of practice with others in person. So what we each need is different and can change over time. To back up a little... I shared that I believe that part of the reason the Buddha's friends were receptive to his teachings is because they knew him and saw his change. Now, this is an aspect of Sangha that develops over time. Sometimes we come together with people who know our history, but more often what happens is that over time we grow together. We see each other's patterns and tendencies soften and shift. Sometimes entering a new sangha can be hard. It can seem like people already know each other super well or that you need to, quote unquote, do something to help people know you. But by practicing together, the connection is made. Nothing needs to be done. I've had this experience again and again on retreat where just by sitting next to someone day in and day out, I develop a sense of camaraderie and connection. One of my dearest friends is someone I met on retreat, and we sat three retreats together over 18 months before we did anything social outside of retreat. We talked a little bit before and after those retreats, and I think we became friends on Facebook. But just by sitting together, realizing that we were drawn to the same retreats and teachers, that created a foundation for our friendship, for us becoming integral parts of one another's sangha. The other thing I already mentioned is this aspect of sangha, of community that can challenge us. I'll share this Ibram X. Kendi quote again. It's best to challenge ourselves by dragging ourselves before people who intimidate us with their brilliance and constructive criticism. The Buddha chose to set the wheel of the Dharma in motion with people he respected and trusted and who were willing to challenge him. It's important to surround ourselves with people on the path that we can be honest with and who we can trust to be honest with us. We don't need the entirety of our sangha, our community, to be like that. But we do need a couple of trusted friends, compatriots, truth-tellers, who can support our desire toward freedom. In the teachings, the term that's used is kalyanamita, spiritual friends. In a teaching, the Buddha states that sangha, that kalyanamita, is the whole of the holy life. There are ways that we must access the practices alone. We meditate on our own, in our own minds. But the insights we gain and the ethical choices we make are reflected in the relationships we create and the ways we interact in the world. Even if you were to become a monastic and wander alone, you would still need to interact with others for, at the very least, food and medicine. We are not in a vacuum. 
and our Kalyanamita are safe places for us to practice the interactive parts of the path, such as wise speech and wise action. The author and healer, Malidoma Patrice Somes, says it so well. Alienation is one of the many faces of modernity. The cure is communication and community. Now, so often the reality is that sanghas are formed by teachers. And so part of our exploration includes an exploration of teachers. Who do we want to learn from? How do we want to learn? Who speaks to us and why? Who are their teachers? What do I hope to get out of this relationship? The role of teacher can vary greatly in different sanghas and communities. Many monastic communities are quite hierarchical, and some lay communities can be too. Some communities have multiple teachers, some have just one, some communities are peer-led. Again, we all need different things in different moments, so what may feel supportive to you at some point may not feel that way at another point. It's okay to change teachers. It's okay to change sanghas or even traditions as your practice grows and your path to liberation becomes clearer. Some teachers work with students one-on-one, which can be a beneficial practice. Some folks are happy sitting with the same teacher every week. It's about your comfort level and what's available. Now, with so many groups creating online presences, there is less geographic limitation and a freedom to find a group or a teacher that really speaks to you. And I do want to share my experience. One summer when I was living away from my sangha, there was a sangha in the town I was living in. The teacher wasn't my flavor, and I was the youngest person there by far, but each week I went and I felt the support of sitting with others also committed to this path, and it was a really lovely experience. It reminded me that even if a sangha isn't 100% what I want it to be, being in community is supportive enough. Another aspect of sangha to look at is how it aligns with our personal ethics and values. An underlying theme of the Buddha's teachings are universality and accessibility. The Buddha taught to all. And so, as we explore what Sangha means or what we're drawn to, it's important to notice who's included in the Sangha and who isn't. What are ways the Sangha feels safe or welcoming to you and others, and what are ways it does not? Some communities have begun to look at ways that their Sanghas are possibly exclusionary. And it might be important for you to understand a sangha's history with that before you get involved in that community. When we come into community, we're part of a bigger picture. Resma Manikam says the following when talking about crafting a white culture free of white supremacy. And I feel it can apply to being in sangha as well. You are helping to build something bigger than yourself. This needs to be reflected in what you do and how you treat and respond to other people. How you are in your spiritual community is how you are in the world. Notice how you act within your sangha. Being in relationship is some of our hardest dharma work, and we can see if a sangha is right for us based on if it supports our growth in these areas or not. I don't feel honest or complete talking about sangha without talking about the sangha that I was a part of that fell apart. In 2012, I found Against the Stream at their Nashville location, and it immediately became my spiritual home. I found my primary teacher there, Matthew Brensilver. I made so many Dharma friends, and I traveled for retreats and trainings with the community, eventually moving to L.A. to become closer to the Sangha. In 2018, when allegations of sexual misconduct of the guiding teacher Noah Levine came to light, 
against the stream hired an independent investigator to determine if there was a cause behind the allegations. The sangha was in turmoil. I was in the midst of teaching a six-month class series with a colleague using Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Buddha's Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. I'll link to that in the show notes. It was the perfect time to be looking at those teachings. I needed to look at what it means to be in community. What ways was I supported in the community? What ways wasn't I supported? And what ways was I helping to create a supportive community? And what ways wasn't I? What ways was I complicit or not holding my sila as strongly as I would have liked? As the investigation wound on, separations began to occur, and it became clear that regardless of the outcome of the investigation, the sangha would fold partially due to lack of funds. The investigation did find that the preponderance of evidence showed that Noah likely violated the third precept, the precept around sexual misconduct. As the sangha in that form fractured, I experienced a lot of grief. It changed some of my friendships and changed how I see certain people. And there is still the sangha of my heart. I didn't lose everything that I got from my time in that community. While we may not meet in the same rooms or as frequently as we used to, while the group of people may be different, there's still a deep connection I have with many of my spiritual friends that I found in that sangha. Some groups that came out of that sangha, Meditation Coalition, Big Heart City, and Recovery Dharma are sanghas that I connect deeply with today. And I'm still leery of getting deeply involved in a large teacher-led sangha again. Currently, I have my teacher who I meet regularly with, and my primary sangha is two of my peers, and that feels supportive for now. And I have Kalyanamita outside of my sangha who I rely on as well. So I share that story because just like everything, Sangha is impermanent. And so it's important to have Sangha and community, and it's important to know that that will change over time, just like every other conditioned phenomena. Wherever you are on the path, it's helpful to reflect on your relationship to Sangha. Who is your community on this path? Who are your Kalyanamita? Especially if you're newer to the path and practice, having people around to ask questions of and to practice with can be very supportive. Whether it's online or in person, finding refuge in the gem of community can open up the whole of the holy life to you. Thank you for listening. Please check out any links in the show notes. You can find me on my website, towardlight.net, or on Instagram at towardlight108.